Fall is upon us, and with it, the official start of spooky season. If the thought of celebrating with a scary movie night secretly puts you off your candy corn, Ruined is the podcast for you. Hosted by our horror aficionado and love-it-or-leave-it head writer, Hallie Kiefer, and her squeamish friend and co-host, Allison Leiby, Ruined unpacks a different horror movie every week. And for those of you, like Allison, who are too scared to watch, fear not. Hallie will ruin the movie for you. Let Ruined help you survive spooky season with your dignity intact. Listen each week wherever you get your podcasts. America Dissected is brought to you by the DeBeaumont Foundation. If you're in public health, understanding policy is part of the job. Sharpen your skills and expand your knowledge with Strategic Skills for Public Health Practice, Policy Engagement, a new book from the DeBeaumont Foundation and APHA Press. Policy Engagement demystifies the policymaking process and gives readers the tools and confidence they need to pursue bold change. To learn more and get your copy, visit DeBeaumont.org. Only 3% of eligible Americans have received a COVID-19 vaccine booster, a pandemic-era low. Attorneys general from 41 states in D.C. sued Meta over features in their products they say are intended to drive compulsive use in children. More than 7,000 people have died, including 3,000 children, in an escalating humanitarian situation in Gaza. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. It's Halloween, which, I have to admit, has always been a bit complicated for me. For one, it's my birthday, which, as anyone with a holiday birthday knows, kind of sucks. In this case, everyone's generally more amped about the holiday where you get to arbitrarily dress up and get candy from folks than, well, my birthday. But also, this holiday kicks off what I'm going to call the food end of the year. Every month features another food-themed holiday. Halloween is all about the candy, of course. And then there's Thanksgiving, which (laughs) I don't have to explain. And then the end-of-the-year holidays, whether Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or Diwali— All of them have their own food themes. And then, of course, there's New Year's Eve. To appreciate just how culturally determined our food choices are, I want you to think through the foods you associate with each of these holidays. I bet if I asked you what your favorite Halloween candy, you'd be able to immediately come up with two or three. And if they're Reese's Cups, you're correct. And no matter which one it is, it probably brings back a warm, fuzzy feeling about a time you ate that candy. When I say Thanksgiving, I'm sure that conjures up a very specific meal, probably featuring turkey or characterized by turkey's conspicuous absence. And of course, if I asked you what your favorite side was, I'm sure you could immediately name it. In our family, it's scalloped oysters. Odd, I know, but delicious. The point I'm making here is that we often think of food as an individual choice that someone makes about what to put in their body. But food, like so much of public health, is a lot more about the environment, both the space, but also the time in which we're exposed to it. Simply put, food is one of the most important ways that the outside world gets into our bodies. But as much as food is environmentally mediated, our preferences are still the final gateway. And here again, society and culture play a part. How many times have you heard, you are what you eat, or an apple a day keeps the doctor away, or milk, it does your body good? It's what our moms and dads told us when we were young. But then there was the stuff we heard from our third parent, the television. No one out pizzas the hut. Tricks are for kids. And of course, live mas. Because there are literally billions of dollars to be made making sure that we lower our gates and let cheaply produced food in, The food industry spends billions trying to get us to lower these gates, even at times making fantastical health claims about why we should. This won't be the first time we've talked about food here, but given how big the topic is, we wanted to create some space to talk about it with some nuance. This is the first of several episodes we'll be doing on food this season. And I wanted to start with the topic that's a far cry from daily apples, milk, or other raw ingredients from the old adages. We'll be talking about something probably all of us have eaten, maybe even eat regularly. But that today's guest, at least would be hard-pressed to consider food. And he doesn't think you should call it food either. And that's because it's been processed beyond recognition. What starts out as a soybean or a kernel of corn is broken down into its constituent molecular parts until it's simply a series of additives, massaged and teased and refined to proffer a specific flavor, texture, or shelf life to a product. All of this is designed to keep us coming back for more. Dr. Chris Van Tulliken is a physician and health researcher at University College London. And he believes this ultra-processed food is creating ultra-processed people, which happens to be the title of his new book. He joined me to talk about food processing, its health implications, and the companies that make billions doing it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Chris Van Tulliken. Can you introduce yourself at the tape? I'm Chris Van Tulliken. I'm a medical doctor in our National Health Service. I'm an associate professor at University College London, where I study something called the commercial determinants of health, how big corporations affect human health. This is now... Uh, the major cause of human health problems on planet Earth. 
And my argument at the moment, and it is an argument because all discussions of food are argument, is that the definition ultra-processed food is the best and most evidenced way of thinking about the products that are driving a global pandemic of diet-related disease, which is now the leading cause of early death on planet Earth, and a synergistic pandemic of um, climate change and malnutrition. This is going to be a fun conversation. And thank you so much for, uh, for, for joining us because I think you, uh, you, you are hitting a lot of, a lot of the, the key ideas that we, we talk about on this, this show. I want to step back. Um, and before we started recording, we were talking about the idea of ultra-processed as a way to understand so much of human experience in this 21st century era where everything gets technologized before we consume it. But when you talk about ultra-processed food, just to sort of set the stage for us about what this discussion is going to be, what do you mean by ultra-processed? What, what does that mean to you? And, and how does that operationalize both in food, but then, you know, applying the device uh, beyond food? I love the use of the word operationalize is like this clue that we're going to really get into things usefully here. So um, for a long time, the problem with food has been defining food that's good and food that's bad. And we've known that there is food that's harmful, but we've never had a formal definition of it. So we've called it junk food or we said processed food, but then also humans have been processing food for a long time. So in around 2009, a team from Brazil developed a formal definition. Now it's very long, it's housed on the United Nations Food and Agriculture website. It's been used by hundreds of research groups all around the world. Um, it's recognized by lots of governments, but it, it boils down to this. If something's wrapped in plastic and contains an additive ingredient that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen, it's mm. almost certainly an ultra-processed food. Okay. And not, not because I'm, I'm an ordinary uh, recovering academic, but because I really want to understand the term. So I started this morning, and we're taping, given that uh, Chris is in London and, and I'm in Ann Arbor. Uh, we're taping at 6.30. So, of course, given the, my, my heavy caffeine addiction, I uh, started the morning with a uh, double espresso. That's not something that you'd find in most kitchens, it is processed and it came wrapped in plastic. Would that be an ultra processed food? No, that, that wouldn't be. So the way I think about it is there are three kinds of food, essentially. Um, there's whole food, which is like an apple or an oyster. There's not much food that we eat that's completely unprocessed, that isn't cooked or isn't, isn't chopped or ground or something. Um, mm. So that, that's whole food. Then there's processed food. Now, humans have been processing food for well over a million years. It's shaped our guts, our jaws, our teeth. If you compare human beings to any other animal of a similar size, like a pig or another non-human primate, we've got these minuscule little teeth and these tiny jaws and a very short digestive tract. And that's because we've extended our eating a nutritional apparatus outside of our bodies. So we chop food rather than chew it. We cook it, which makes it easier to digest. We get more energy out of it. So primarily female scientists invented modern cuisine, and they did it over more than a million years in caves, then huts, then domestic kitchens. And they did it to nourish their friends, their families, and their communities. And so they created this very wide variety of modern diets, um, all of which are associated basically with good health, whether we look at uh, fish diets from East Asia, vegan diets from South Asia, um, Arctic sea mammal diets, Mediterranean diets, they're all pretty healthy. We don't, we, there, there are tiny exceptions to that we can get into, but broadly traditional food is associated with good diet. What we have now is the third type of food that makes up most of the calories we eat. And it is arguably not food in the sense that I think we, we don't have a legal or a scientific definition of food, but food culturally is about nourishment. And the purpose of ultra-processed food, part of that very long formal definition, is it's about profit. And the system that makes mm. it, it's made by quite a small number of companies, is heavily financialized. So all the incentives in that system are about creating more money. And there's this you know, financial axiom, if you show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. If you make food essentially for pension funds and for financial growth, you end up with food that is made using extremely cheap ingredients and that has quasi or really addictive properties. So ultra-processed food is a way of describing really a modern American diet. And I, I hate saying this to Americans because I, I love America. My, my folks are from Canada, but I feel very North American. But 
we could, so we could define it using the long definition. We could define it according to the additives. Or we could say, this is a way of describing uh, industrial Western foods, the food, the industrial food that's come out of the global north um, that is fundamentally extractive. If a food has a, a list of ingredients, it's probably ultra processed. If, if a food has a health claim, like it's low fat, high fiber, high in energy, high in protein, it's probably ultra processed. If a food is made by a transnational food corporation, it's probably ultra processed. That's really helpful because there are a couple of things in that definition that I think are really guiding to me in my thinking. The first is this point about end outcome. You know, you contrasted the incentives of a large corporation to make a lot of money on some food versus the incentives of uh, a person to nourish their family from some food. And it's like the, the it's this place where we decouple the producer uh, and the consumer. And when the consumer of the food isn't also the producer, that's one key point to think about. And then the second is to think about the scale of production. And then the third is to think about the actual processing, how much breaking down and building back up and manufacturing goes into it. So my daughter uh, and I, uh, we have this habit of watching um, YouTube videos about how things are made. And so we'll just take a random thing in the kitchen and, you know, it'll be like an Oreo. I'm just like, how is it made? How old is she? And she's, she's about to turn six. So oh, I've, I've got a six-year-old. Yeah, I've, yeah. We, we, do a, we do a similar thing, yeah. It's a lovely age, right? Because they're like yeah, truly yeah. curious about the world, yeah. but they also come to the world without preconceived biases of what, of, of what they think the world um, is or what they, what they will excuse as normal. So she saw this point in Oreo production where they were making the cookie and the guy was using a shovel. And there was this notion where she was like, it looks like dirt, Bubba. And I was like, yeah, you know, that's kind of what it looks like. And she's like, he's just shoveling it into this very big machine. And it was this moment of like, oh, wait, like, I think of my Oreo as this dainty little thing that somebody, you know, cooked for me with, with <laughs> kindness and love. And they she rolled sees this, it out and got it, the little cutter. Exactly. Yeah. And, and somebody like kissed their, kissed their fingers as they <laughs> sent it in the box to us. I was like, no, this is how they make that many Oreos. I mean, and she was like, well, I don't know that I like that. And I was like, yeah, neither do I. And this is why we tell you, you can't eat so many Oreos. And so it was this natural of just, just aversion she had to what processing actually entailed, like this, this man shoveling her Oreo into a thing. And, and it, was, it was like almost she picked up this metaphor of this is unnatural and tr we food shouldn't, shouldn't be treated this way. We shouldn't make food with shovels. Uh, so I sit in this really weird space where in, intuitively and emotionally, I entirely agree with your five-year-old. They are, they are right. But because... The book was published in April, and it's been very widely read in the, in the, the, the UK and, and in the US and in Canada. Um, I'm now having an argument uh, against the food industry every, every day, and the argument takes many forms and shapes. But one of the things I try and do is not get too involved in the emotional long grass, because that's a, that's a trap where they say, well, we're feeding the world how do you expect us to make this many cookies? Like, of course we use a shovel, but fundamentally our factory is just a really big kitchen. We just use bigger pots and pans. Mm. And so for me, the, the technical argument that I lean on very heavily is much less an emotional critique, although, although that's really useful. When I'm speaking to my, my reader or the, the lay public, I do want to disgust them with this food. I think people should be disgusted. I think that's useful for many people. It comes with a problem because this is the only food that many people can afford and the only food that's right. available to them, but we can, we can come on to that. So yeah. I, I try and do that without generating stigma. But when it comes to the argument with the companies, for me, the really important thing is not that they're using a shovel, although that is using a shovel is a proxy for an industrial process that does not have your interests at heart. And so I'm doing I'm doing a really cool piece of work at the moment where my academic work shifted from doing molecular biology, uh, from studying nutrition at a very kind of basic level, to now I work with economists. And one of the things that the the team I'm working with and they're dispersed around the world, the main teams in Australia 
is they're trying to prove using financial metrics that the food companies will say that they care about you, but they really definitely don't. And we can demonstrate, for example, that when they make money, instead of using that money to reduce the price or using that money to make sure that they use higher quality ingredients or make the food healthier, what they do is they use the money to do share buybacks and drive up equity value. So we're using measurements like this. We can say, look, whether or not you use a shovel to make the food, if if my um, parents were going to cook a meal for a thousand people at some enormous wedding, they might well use a big tool to shovel ingredients into a giant pan. That wouldn't actually be a problem. The problem would be the incentives. Mm, yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. I, I want to ask you just, you know, you you um, you teed off on America here, and I, I certainly agree with you. Uh, we're, a, you know, we've increasingly become a much, uh, much more self-critical, at least some of us have become much more self-critical in our country. Uh, there's a lot to be critical about. Um, I want to ask you, in an average American diet, just how much ultra-processed food do we consume in a given day? So um, it's it's around uh, 60%. Um, wow. the, the way we collect the data is um, uh, flawed, and it almost certainly underestimates the amount. So, uh, you know, you have a national diet survey. We have the same one in the UK. We don't collect the granular detail of... If you say you ate lasagna for dinner, it's not entirely clear on most of the surveys if you cooked that yourself or if you had it in a packet. So if you if you bought a ready meal lasagna that had flavoring, emulsifiers, xanthan gum, um, uh, lots of stuff you don't have in your kitchen, it would be ultra processed. It would probably be coded as in the, in the studies as not ultra processed. So we probably underestimate it. A typical amount for an American teenager or, or a child would be 70 or 80%. So we, wow. we know it's much higher in, in younger people. And of course, in already disadvantaged people, it's even higher still. So if we think about um, people with very low incomes uh, and, and the communities they come from, those people are essentially forced to eat harmful food. I, I want to touch on that point because I don't want to let that one go, which is, you know, I actually incidentally wrote my doctoral dissertation on the predictors of obesity in the UK, uh, and um, thinking a lot about uh, socioeconomic position and um, and race as predictors, um, but but really not not as much as predictors, but as metrics that we can use to identify processes of marginalization uh, and food access. And one of the big differences between the UK and the US tends to be access to whole foods or we'll just say processed foods. Um, there's much more a culture of smaller and readily accessible um, food venues in, you know, even in, you know, you, you talk about the lowest income parts of London and you tend to have large immigrant communities who tend to open up smaller uh, fruit markets in effect and they'll have some, you know, traditional ethnic foods, but they'll usually have green leafy vegetables and other kinds of cuisines. You go to um, communities in the U.S., so you know, just to compare, like a Detroit and a Newcastle, which I think are pretty, pretty apt comparison. And there's just less access to. They're both um, ex-industrial towns uh, with high unemployment. Yeah, exactly. And you tend to have far fewer um, accessible grocery stores. So I, I always talk. You know, we talk this about this idea of of a food desert, and I actually think probably the better term for it in the U.S. is a food swamp. There's, yeah. there's a lot of food. There's just not the kind that is going to nourish, you know, a brain. Um, and and I want to ask you, you know, as you think about uh, the process by which these corporations have almost dominated the food space, it seems, it would seem counterintuitive when you actually explain the process. You're like, wait, ultra processing, the processing itself should cost more money. How come the food that lowest income people in high income societies end up getting is ultra processed? Can you talk a little bit through that and the ways that corporations have been able to leverage their power uh, to be able to make that the truth? Okay, so this the, the, let's let's deal with the sort of technical question first. Why is it cheaper to make an ice cream uh, with twenty ingredients rather than just making it from uh, cream, vanilla, sugar, and some eggs? Yes. So um, one of the issues with dairy fat is you've got to grow a cow, milk a cow, feed the cow. Um, then when you get the milk, you've got to pasteurize it, homogenize it, separate it out. 
um, it's extremely expensive way of making fat. Now, if you can take some of that dairy fat and replace it with a refined, bleached, deodorized, hydrogenated, and interesterified palm fat, it's way, way cheaper. Palm, you don't you don't need to feed a palm tree anything. You just grow it. You you cut down some virgin rainforest. Uh, you sell mm. that lumber and you grow your palm on on the Indonesian peat soil. It grows brilliantly well. That it's all fed by the sun. Um, and then by putting it through this RBD process through an edible oil refinery, which looks rather like a crude oil refinery, um, you can create a fat with any melting point and any texture you want uh, by changing all the, the bonds between the carbons. So if you can save a little bit of dairy fat, that'll be great. Now, eggs are a nightmare. Eggs have salmonella in them. You've got to grow the chickens. They, You've got to crack the eggs open and um, process them. Eggs are just a terrible thing for a food company to deal with. If you can replace the egg with a synthetic emulsifier, even 50% or better yet entirely, like mono and diglycerides of fatty acids, then you're onto an absolute winner. Um, if you use real vanilla, it's expensive. If you use synthesized vanillin flavor, public don't seem to tell the difference, no one cares, and you can still call it vanilla. So by replacing every ingredient, um, you sometimes need to use more, but each one is is much, much, much cheaper. And a lot of the mm -hmm. logic, that, so the industrial logic of UPF is some of the time it's just, essentially it's made from five or six plants, right? That We, we eat basically six plants and three animals. That's that's the human, that's the modern human American, mm. you know, Northwest diet. We, we eat rice, corn, soy, wheat, palm, and, and some sunflower oil. And then we add to that some pork, some beef, and some chicken, maybe a bit of fish, but we don't eat much fish. So that's our diet. And a cob of corn will spoil, you go buy a cob of corn, you can keep that in your fridge for a few days, maybe a week tops if you get it early. Um, you've got to own a fridge, you've got to keep it in the fridge, and then you've got to heat up water, boil the corn. Now, if you're a corn manufacturer growing a monoculture crop of corn, it's very, you know, people only eat cobs of corn once a week tops. If you can take your corn and you can turn it into bioethanol for running a car on, high fructose corn syrup, you can get the corn oil out of it, you can get a protein isolate out of it. You've now created, with your high fructose corn syrup, a liquid that can be added to anything from soda pop to pizza to breakfast cereal. I mean, it is in everything. You can take the mm -hmm. emulsifiers out of soy and the, the soy protein. You can add it to everything. And those pastes, powders, and liquids have a nearly infinite shelf life. So you go from the logic of a commodity crop, which you mainly grow to, fuel, to feed animals, soy corn, and you take a little fraction of that and you turn it into, you, you add it to the human food supply. So we're... There's a way of thinking about this, which we're really eating the waste that's left over from feeding animals. And you'll see some ingredients are really incredible. So whey protein is a great example of, we used to spread whey protein on fields, right? It was, it was waste. It was leftover from the cheese industry. Now we mix it with vitamins and flavoring and sell it to bodybuilders. And we've increased the value four, five orders of magnitude. I mean, it, it, the, the added value when you can do that is incredible. You'll see citrus fiber on a lot of your little nutri bars. If you, if you work out and you buy those high protein bars, citrus fiber is an added ingredient. Now citrus fiber, no, there's nothing harmful in it, but it's extracted from the peel that would previously have been thrown away when you make a can of grapefruit slices or you uh, make orange juice and you're left with all the peel. You can turn that, that into a fiber, which has some nutritional value, I suppose it's fibrous, but it's just a way of taking waste and adding it to the food chain. The same is true of all the fats, mango kernel fat. So that the industrial logic is take the cheapest ingredient and, and, and add it to the human food chain. Mm. America Dissected is brought to you by Karyuma. Karyuma has been our go-to sneakers for a while now because they're really comfortable, go with everything, and they're made with consciously sourced materials. Last year, we collaborated with Karyuma to create No Steps Back sneakers, and we can't believe they've now designed a second limited edition collaboration with us, the Love It or Leave It sneaker. These shoes have a colorful design with lots of Easter eggs. I mean, look, not Taylor Swift level Easter eggs. We're not insane. Just fun stuff like Pundit on a surfboard. Plus, a portion of the proceeds for every pair sold is donated to VSA's Every Last Vote Fund. Our first Karyuma collab sold out super fast, so if you want a pair for yourself or the Love It fan in your life, make sure to snag one now. 
that make the perfect gift for a holiday season with free returns. Just head to crooked.com slash store. America Dissected is brought to you by Outer Known. Uh, look, I'm really glad it's finally fall because the summer was downright freaky. So look, I'm trying to do everything I can to make sure that like the summers in the future aren't as bad as this one was. When you wear Outer Known, you're not just wearing a piece of clothing. You're wearing a product for a better planet. Outer Known makes men's and women's clothes that are made from organic and recycled materials using fair trade factories all over the world. They're comfortable, cozy, fit great, and are designed to last. And also designed to make you look great and feel good about your purchase. Their best-selling product, the blanket shirt, is the perfect blend of style and comfort. It's the perfect gift for anyone in your life. They also make tees, denim pants, swim trunks, sweaters, and everything else you could want. All made with the highest regard for sustainability and the planet. Go to OuterKnown.com slash America today and you'll get 25% off your first order. That's OuterKnown.com slash America. Spelled O-U-T-E-R-K-N-O-W-N dot com slash America to receive the 25% off discount code. Check them out today. OuterKnown.com slash America and don't forget to use the promo code on the page for 25% off. Marguerite Casey Foundation is thrilled to introduce their 2023 Freedom Scholars. These academic luminaries provide crucial insights for social justice and inspire us to boldly reshape our democracy, economy, and society. Professor Pramila Nadesan has a clear message for us all. Tweets and YouTube likes won't drive the real change we need. It's about building strong communities for social transformation. Join Pramila and Margaret Casey Foundation as we envision a world where every community shapes our economy and democracy. Discover the entire cohort of 2023 Freedom Scholars. Dive in at caseygrants.org or follow them on social media at caseygrants. The spread of misinformation has fueled our cultural divide and increased our collective anxiety about the future. Tackling misinformation isn't a simple task, but it's important. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about Conspirituality, a podcast that's dismantling new age cults, wellness grifters, and conspiracy mad yogis. On the show, a journalist, a cult researcher, and a philosophical skeptic dive deep into current events such as RFK Jr.'s involvement in mainstreaming dangerous anti-vax rhetoric or cover medical medium, the celebrity-endorsed influencer who has peddled the magical healing powers of celery juice. They crowdsource, research, analyze, and dream up answers to the problem, with proven science as their ultimate guiding light. From exploring cults to analyzing our cultural and political landscape, the Conspirituality Podcast will help you stay informed against misinformation and resist fear tactics. Find Conspirituality on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've really helped us to understand and explain the way that extraction out of these few small or these few very, very, very large commodity crops um, displaces a lot of the traditional foods that, you know, we're, we're sort of making technological simulacra out of. Um, technological I, I simulacra. I'm going to use that at least twice today. That is my mission. I'm going to use that. You know, hey, that one's, that one's for you. Uh <laughs> But like, that's what it is. I mean, really, it's like I'm eating ice cream. No, you're actually not. You're you're eating a whole bunch of, frankly, chemicals that have been fully extracted from uh, a, a base commodity crop to the point where you actually, from a, on a molecular level, almost can't know where it came from. And then add mixed oh, you, together. You can't. I mean, your sandwich will have forty ingredients. I mean, my, my my the sandwich I used to eat for lunch has forty two ingredients. You you if you want to be an ethical consumer, you can't keep tabs on all that. And nor do we know what they're doing to the body. I mean, you. So the the argument becomes devilish because many of these the definition focuses on the additives, and so I think a common mis misconception is it's the additives that are harmful. And while we have very good data that, for example, the emulsifiers and the non-nutritive sweeteners and the flavor enhancers and some flavors are harmful, for the most part, the additives are just a proxy for the industrial process that's about extracting money. I mean, you asked about corporate power, which is the more complex question. And there is this, um, when we look at already disadvantaged communities in London. So if I go to South London, there's this, this paradox amongst our African and Caribbean communities that there are whole food markets with very traditional food. And there's a generation of people who still buy that food and cook it. And you then talked about there is, there is also a culture of using convenient, uh, ready processed chicken chop, fried chicken, kebab shots. There's a, there's a culture of that. I would say there is not a, a culture of that. There is um, the imposition of that right. food in a predatory right. way by enormous companies. And 
something I worked very hard on in the book was to to go to um, those communities and understand from their perspective this kind of dissonance where um, people, you know, in in South London will be very defensive about fried chicken because you can't live with the dissonance that you are being uh, exploited and extracted from when it's the only food you can eat. But the the voices in my book from, I mean, particularly the, the black community were entirely clear that if you, if you look at the ownership of the kind of major chicken shop chains, this is not um, a culturally appropriate local food producer. This is a, a company owned by, um, you know, shareholders in the global north with that demographic that is extractive not just of poor communities in London and people of colour in London, but it's also extractive of the global south. And we're seeing the, the the huge expansion of the major chains into Ghana, Kenya, into the sort of bur- burgeoning middle class of Western Central Africa in, in a way that is kind of desperately harmful. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that point insofar as there is this implicit blaming uh, of people of color, low-income people for, quote, food choices. And your point is a really good one, that it's not actually about choices that people are making. It's about the opportunity set that is increasingly being uh, manufactured for them um, around price structure. And we see a, see a you know, very, very similar thing that's happened here in the U.S. well well before it started to happen uh, e- even in Europe. And, and certainly, as you talked about, in uh, large capitals in you know, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, lower-income Middle East countries, et cetera. I want to move, um, because you, you make a really important argument in the book that the the disastrous consequences of ultra-processed foods go well beyond calories in, calories out. And that that's traditionally what, what you were taught in medical schools, what I was taught in medical school, that really it's just about calories in and calories out. And if you have this calorie balance, then uh, you know that that is that is just fine. It really doesn't matter what those calories are. And your argument is that actually that's that's just not true. Can you tell us a little bit about why UPF are designed to be overconsumed, and then how they violate you calories in, calories out? So one of the one of the kind of really cool ways that the the industry messes up this discussion is by conflating weight gain and all the other problems of of diet. So let's just deal with the pandemic of. Uh, increased body weight that has has happened in the states and is happening at an extraordinary rate around the world, and it certainly happened in the UK. Um, there is, um, I think, very wide agreement uh, that uh, the human body can't violate the laws of physics, uh, and we burn a certain number of calories per day. And there's not much that actually changes that number of calories per day. Um, Inactivity is a very small part of the picture. And if you consume more calories than you burn, um, you will uh, gain weight. And so the the food industry has put uh, two really big emphases on this discussion. First of all, they say, well, everyone has an individual responsibility to monitor their own calories, you know, and we are the only animal on planet Earth that seems to think that we can read a list of calories and then control our calorie intake. And so when we say to people, um, uh, when they're surrounded by food that has addictive properties, well, just eat your, you know, you and I will use about 3,000 calories a day. Just eat your 3,000, keep tabs on it, do the maths on every single mouthful, and then stop when you get to 3,000. It's the same as saying to smokers, look, guys, you know, one cigarette a week is fine. You just have to stop at one or to someone who lives with a an addiction to alcohol or illicit drugs of abuse saying, you know, well, just have one line of cocaine, have one shot of heroin, you know, and you won't come to any harm. It's the excessive use that's doing you harm. So there is very good evidence that the food is addictive um, for many people, but there's also very good evidence that it interrupts our ability to self-regulate. So Food is abundant for many, many animals, uh, including for human beings traditionally. Uh, And if you eat real food, your body has a very well-evolved set of uh, nerves and hormones inside it that when you have had enough food, your body will say, okay, you're done, you can stop eating now. We know from a huge body of data, going back to the 90s, I mean, just we have so much science on this, that when food is manufactured so that it is soft, it is energy dense, it is flavored, it is flavor enhanced, those amongst many other properties get around that that, um, ability to feel full. Um, So 
the, the other thing the food industry has very skillfully said is, look, if you do eat too much, go for a run. And so there is a very large body of credible looking literature that says if you do more exercise, you can burn off excess calories. And that frames the problem with the pandemic obesity as being kind of to do with this pandemic of inactivity. And that mm. feels very, I mean, that was the way I learned at medical school, you know, people could run off, the, you know, eat less, do more is the kind of maxim. In fact, the entire network of literature that promotes that and all the institutions that promoted it were funded by one company, the Coca-Cola Corporation. So Exercise is Medicine was a Coca-Cola program in the States partnered with the American mm. College of Sports Medicine. What we have, I think, very good evidence around now, and this is published in very good journals. It goes back to the 1990s. There isn't the lead, the sort of main author on this is Herman Ponser, but there are a huge number of other scientists saying the same thing, which is that um, broadly by increasing your activity in the way that most of us will, like we'll go to the gym a couple of times a week, you know, by walking to work, that will be very, very good for us. It doesn't seem to have a huge impact on the calories we burn. So the, 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 this is really kind of food industry misinformation and the extent to which as a, I mean, you, you, you and I with PhDs and medical degrees had our thinking influenced by this network of research is kind of extraordinary to me. But anyway, this is, you can sound a bit conspiratorial, but the, the, you know, I, I put a whole chapter in my book about exercise is good for you, but it, there is very good evidence it will not really help you lose weight. It might help you keep it off as part of a kind of healthy lifestyle, but it, it doesn't seem to very much affect the calories we burn. And one mechanism of this that I just think is really important to be thinking about is that human hunger and satiety are centrally mediated. Like we have a very, very large brain that beyond just saying I'm hungry or I'm full has a lot of imagination to that. And so most of the time when you're hungry or full, you're not just saying, I would like to eat any calories, right? There are particular mm. things that you're craving. Those cravings take particular forms. And those forms tend to be the most delectable, most juicy things that you can potentially eat. So I know when I'm, uh, I walk into the house and I'm hangry, um, if I have Oreos or I have an apple, I'm picking the Oreos. And the reason why is because, you know, the Nabisco Corporation, it's probably owned by some other corporation now, um, designed well, those owned, things. Of course, by R.J. Reynolds, the tobacco oh, okay. company. Yeah. Or, Nabisco wow, was, is... So the tobacco companies bought, Philip Morris and, and R.J. Reynolds bought most of the major food brands in the States. So almost every ultra-processed product you eat now, if it dates back to the 80s or the 90s, was owned by one of those two tobacco companies. So, anyway, just so as an aside. That says something really profound because, because the, the experience of eating an Oreo for me, right, hits all of these nutritional erogenous zones in my mind, right? Versus having an apple. And look, I like apples. Like apples are one of my favorite fruits, but they're fruits. And, um, and they weren't manufactured, right? To specifically give me that kind of, I hate to say it, that high, right? Of having eaten uh, this ultra processed food. So there's this way in which, right? Our psychological mediation gets tickled by uh, these corporations that design their products just so, so that they become the go-to product. And, and the other part that you talk quite a bit about in the book is just the chemical mediation of that. Can you speak to the way that they tend to get engineered specifically around those flavors that we can't, you know, we can't deny ourselves? And then also the, the way that chemicals get leveraged into sort of disrupting uh, our biological processes? Yeah, so there's a really important um, finesse I want to add to what you're saying, which is that it's easy to frame this food as delicious. I think the food is delicious in the same way a cigarette is delicious mm. or beer is delicious. The first sip, the first puff, the first bite, often you do get a, uh, some euphoria from it. It seems to satisfy some craving very briefly. But by the time you're approaching the end of the burger or the bag of chips or the packet of cigarettes or the, the, fifth, the fifth beer, you're no longer really enjoying it. And so there is a big difference in the human brain between liking and wanting. And what this food and all these products, whether it's booze or, or, or drugs of abuse, they're really good at generating wanting. Liking, mm, not so much. That's of very mm. little interest to the food companies. And so I think it's really important when you talk about this food, when anyone talks, to not frame it as delicious because actually the trial data is pretty clear that people don't find this food delicious. They find it extremely palatable and unsatisfying um, 
but it's very close to being disgusting for many people, which is why I put this invitation in the book to please eat as you read, because the food can very quickly go through that kind of uncanny valley where it becomes, a, it, what was the word you used? Simulacrum. It's, a, it's, it's fake. And once you realize that an Oreo is fake, when you start eating an Oreo and reading the ingredients and realize how little of it is food, um, it can become very repulsive. So, Yes. Okay. So how do they do it? The conversation we have in the UK is what the industry and their intermediaries want us to believe is that the problem with food, unhealthy food, is high in fat, salt, and sugar. Now, it's true that those molecules do drive uh, appetite to some extent, but they're a relatively small part of the picture. What when it comes to obesity is the problem is when we eat too much. And so the ratios of fat salt, sugar, sour, and bitter are much more important than the absolute amounts. And if you think, if you if you get a bowl of, um, you know, a, a UPF cereal, whatever your favorite one would be, you, you could make it even more unhealthy by adding another three spoonfuls of sugar and adding a spoonful of salt. But because it would become repulsive, you wouldn't eat it and it would actually become healthier. So a big part of what drives a food food's unhealthiness is this palatability. It's how much we eat. So a really good example, I think, is to think about the construction of a soda pop. Now, these used to be called phosphate pops, or um, they were served at phosphate bars because they all contain phosphoric acid. Now, if you take a glass of water, uh, which I, you know, I, I have an empty one here. Now, let's imagine adding, if we filled that with, with water, if we added 10 spoonfuls of sugar it would become more disgusting, not less disgusting, wouldn't it? No, no one ever adds sugar to water. But if you add a few drops of synthetic flavor um, uh, and you make it very bitter with caffeine and you add sourness from the phosphoric acid and the citric acid and you make it fizzy and cold, it then becomes addictive. And we understand a little bit about how this works. Part of it is because of the sourness, the bitterness, the coldness, and the fizz, you can get all that sugar past your tongue because you, your body should be saying, this is actually too much sugar. This is going to mess up my blood concentration and my water balance. If you can get, if you can deliver the dose of sugar into the gut, it seems that you get that sudden reward, the nutritional reward. You link that reward to the flavor pattern, which is patented in the, in the, in the recipe, and that's what brings you back to that soda pop wanting more. So there is so much more to the addiction of these drinks than just the sugar. If sugar was addictive, we'd all put, we'd all eat sugar with a spoon or we'd, you know, but none of us ever, ever are addicted to sugar. We're addicted to sugar mixed with emulsifiers, acid, sourness in chewy, weird textures, um, wrapped in plastic, branded to us. That, in that context, sugar delivers a reward. So mm. I, it, it's kind of like speedballing, it, you know, with, with, there was a, there's a, when I worked as a physician in, you may have seen this in emergency rooms, patients will often take stimulant drugs like cocaine or uh, methamphetamine, and then they'll take sedative drugs at the same time, like heroin or benzodiazepines. And the more heroin you take, the more crack cocaine you can take. And so you can kind of overdose on both, but feel okay and, and get a high in two directions. And it's a little bit like what's happening. The more mm. sour and bitter you add, the more sugar and salt you add. Wow. No, that, that's, that's really helpful to understand. And it, you know, really gets to that, that notion that behind all of this is this very fine-tuned uh, technological manufacturing process that, that really is designed to to, to just load you with this stuff and to make you come back and want more. I mean, the weird thing is no one understands why the diet colas are addictive. So we know they are. Many people watching or listening to this, maybe people who drink seven, eight cans of it a day, they will, they will find it very hard or impossible to stop. And there was some amazing research done at Yale by a fantastic scientist called Dana Small, and it was funded by Pepsi. And Dana discovered that the non-nutritive sweeteners... Um, seem to have this very weird effect where they they would drive excess consumption, but they they caused a lot of metabolic imbalance. So we 
we would, the food industry argues that, well, we can make ultra processed food healthier by taking out the sugar calories or the fat calories and replacing them with gums or non-nutritive sweeteners. The non-nutritive sweeteners seem to cause this real metabolic confusion and somehow they can be addictive to without any calories. So we don't, mm. the only research that's ever been done funded by Pepsi once Dana tried to publish it, um, you know, Pepsi got quite unhappy. Um, some of it is out there, but we, we barely understand how this stuff works from an academic perspective. Hmm. I want to I want to move to thinking a bit about interventions here. Um, first of all, it's tempting to think that we as consumers can just choose our way out of the problem, and in some respects, we can. And if folks listening today say, "You know what? I really want to take ultra processed foods as far out of my diet as possible," what are some of the things that they can do? So I relentlessly refuse to give anyone advice about what to eat. And I do that for two reasons. First of all, many people want to look different and I don't want to endorse that perspective. So a lot of people come to me and say, I want, want to be thinner. And I, I feel, well, you're, you, you know, I, I, do, I don't think that anyone needs to be thinner. I don't think that people will look better. They may not even feel better. Most of the harms of excess weight come from the fact that doctors marginalize and abuse patients and stigmatize patients who live with excess weight. Living mm. with excess weight does have some health problems, but but most of it is probably the health problems that come from the diet that drives excess weight rather than the weight itself. So I don't feel anyone should look different and I don't judge anyone for eating this food. We eat the food that's around us. Um, I do think that people who live with an addicted relationship may find that abstinence uh, is much more helpful than trying to reduce. And I think the the evidence around how to become abstinent is uh, that I draw on is the evidence around that this famous book, The Easy Way to Quit Smoking. And it's, it's the only self-help book that is recommended by the World Health Organization. And the proposal in that book is you smoke while you read the book. And there's loads of um, randomized trials on it versus nicotine gum and other behavioral interventions. And it works really, really well. So if you live with addiction, learn about ultra-processed foods, see if you can shift to being disgusted. But the, my caution will be is your life will become inconvenient and expensive. E eating real food mm. is incredibly expensive because we we subsidize ultra-processed food in, in all kinds of ways, like direct crop subsidy and all the external costs of climate change and the cost to our health. You know, you, you're going to pay those costs at some point, but you're not going to pay them when you pay for the food. So the food is artificially cheap. Um and for someone who just wants to align uh, their groceries, you know, if they're feeding, I mean, I've got, I've got the six-year-old and the three-year-old and my wife's pregnant and I don't want to eat this stuff, but I also want my kids to be normal. I want, you know, food binds us to the people around us. All their friends eat this stuff all day. So mm -hmm. I don't ban it. When they go to parties, they can eat anything they want. We don't have much in the house. So a, a big deal is it, it's like cigarettes. If you have them in the house or if you have booze in the house, you will tend to smoke or drink it. So not buying it and not having it in the house is useful or treating it as, as exceptional. You know, we, we're all allowed indulgence and there, many people can enjoy two cigarettes a week, a glass of wine on a Friday night. You know, that can be a perfectly healthy part of a lifestyle. The problem with that stuff is that many of us find it hard to not experience the mission creep where you are enjoying that stuff at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning. And I know from the book that the real intervention has to come at the level of policy. So what are the things that we should be driving our policymakers uh, to be doing around reducing this in our environment? The most important thing is that we frame this using the language of the free market and the political right. So I, I'm my private politics, I, I keep close to my chest. I don't talk about the party I vote for. You can probably make guesses about them. I'm a humanitarian doctor and I do uh, work in our public NHS service. So what I advocate for and what the charities I work with advocate for is not we're not taking away anyone's fun. We don't want to ban anything. I'm not even proposing taxes on anything. What we want is people to have increased freedom an increased choice. We want them to have freedom from misleading marketing, freedom from aggressive uh, packet claims, freedom from mis misleading pack claims, um, and, and to be able to afford real food. Because we know that when people with low incomes get money, 
They buy real food. There mm-hmm. is The gulf between what rich people eat and what poor people eat is not because poor people don't have information. It's because yeah. when people have lots of money, they, they want to buy healthy food. So um, it, it, we, we have to use that language. And the other thing is not to allow it to be framed as neo-Marxist, as anti-capitalist. We're talking about regulating an industry that is the, the leading cause of early death on earth, right? This isn't, this is not controversial. We did it with tobacco. We did it with seatbelts. We did it with leaded petrol. You know, light touch regulation works fantastically well. The companies can deliver fantastic growth to their shareholders. Everyone can remain employed. We're talking about bringing in some regulation that will incentivize the companies to produce really good food. So I, I refuse to be pigeonholed as an as an anti capitalist. This is this is all, you know, can all be done across the political divide because. I think we all agree that children should be able to eat healthy food regardless of the household they're born into. Yeah. No, and I really appreciate that focus on uh, the inequities that are driven by the food environment. Are there a few specific interventions that you would really point to as being these are the ones that are most important right now? Yeah. So the first thing is the acknowledgement that ultra-processed food as a formal definition is useful for policy. And we need to put in our national nutrition guidance in the UK and in the US that this food is um, has been associated with a long list of negative health outcomes. Regardless of whether you gain weight, it drives dementia, anxiety, depression, cardiometabolic disease, inflammatory disease. There is a long list of conditions, cancer, early death from all causes. So This needs to go in the National Nutrition Guidance. Now, that sounds a bit finickety and technical. No one ever reads that. But that is the lever that then allows you to to do other steps. And that's what the food industry are resisting. We need to take all the cartoon characters off the packs. That's completely obvious. We did it with cigarettes. You know, cigarettes were aggressively marketed to kids. All the cartoon characters off the packs. And we need to follow the example of Chile, Colombia, Brazil, Mexico, Argentina. If you buy a can of cola in Argentina, the warning labels are bigger than the logo of the manufacturer. And that's how Fizzy Pop should be sold, pretty obviously. We have absolutely irrefutable evidence that Fizzy Pop drives all kinds of terrible harms to children and adults, and it should have a great big warning label on it. Same with the breakfast cereals. Um, And then we change institutional food. So this is started just as the food companies are using the tobacco industry playbook to spread misinformation, to fund policymakers. Um, we need to use the regulatory te- te- playbook that we use to regulate tobacco, limit the marketing. And, and perhaps more than anything else, industry money is dirty money. You cannot be a food charity or a food policy organization and take any money from the companies who profit from creating the problem you are trying to solve. And the, in the UK, the situation is just terrible where we get, we get these supposedly independent groups who are all funded by Kraft Heinz, Pepsi Lay, you know, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Cargill. Um, and they they have huge sway over policy. So it, perhaps if there's it, that that is my second to the top is stop the conflicts of interest and the absolute number one thing is reduce poverty. If all you do is get rid of poverty, then people with money buy healthy food. They can all afford refrigerators and cutting boards and they all have time and they they buy good food and the, the market will correct itself. So perhaps that's that's the number one thing. And I, I think poverty is a is a political choice. It's not a natural state of people. I, I really appreciate that sentiment. One thing I, I noticed that you didn't talk about was subsidizing some of these commodity crops. So in the U.S., you know, you talk about conflicts of interest and uh, the role of food money in the running and operations of these uh, charities. In the U.S., we have a political system which is porous to that money as well. And so you have these corporations spend hundreds of thousands it's of dollars. It's not just porous. It's fueled it's, by it's, it. Yeah, exactly. That is decidedly true. And so you can get elected by getting, you know, PAC contributions from, you know, huge food companies who then you, uh, <laughs> who'd have thought it, not regulate when you're actually in office. And, and in fact, not only that, but direct huge sums of government money to subsidize, right? You, you look at the agricultural industry in the United States, it's largely um, gigantic agro-corporations that are uh, funded by um, government incentives to grow really, really artificially cheap corn uh, or soy or some of these other commodity yeah. crops. And yeah. that tends to create an artificial setting where, you know, these uh, food 
prices are artificially low, which allow them to undercut yeah. some of the wholer foods that people could otherwise be eating. And I, I you know, don't want to paint all farmers with broad, broad brushstrokes. There are some heroes out there, small farms who are, are still growing whole foods. But, you know, if you just look at the sector and you analyze it by size of farm, it has been consolidated like so many of the other industries in our yeah. society have been. And I, I, I want to ask you- There are six you know, companies that make around 75 to 90% of the world's calories. Yeah. And, that, and that, there are four that, four that make most of them, yeah. And that itself is a function of, of public policy, largely American public policy. Yeah, so you're completely right. At no point in the book did I go, we need to sort out US food subsidy systems. And that was partly because that is a whole separate book. Mm. Um, and um, partly because I think when it comes to the granular detail of those policies, so I am very good on like how we need to label a pack, how we need to warn people, um, I think when it comes to the long-term effects of food subsidy, it requires really, really nuanced technical input. I mean, basically, yes, it's disgraceful and disgusting, and we have a very similar situation that's slightly less exaggerated, or we're just 10 years behind you in the UK. Um, so changing those subsidies, I don't have an immediate mechanism for interrupting that corporate power other than I think the, the there needs to be, before there can before politicians can start saying, uh, we're going to tackle a problem. You need a grassroots momentum to say, you know what, we're sick of eating this garbage and we want the system changed. And I do have some faith that the food system, that many of those small producers could meet demand. But look, look basically you're entirely right. And it, we need a revolution in the way we grow, produce and process food. And for me, the place to start is with the 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 human being the voting public going i really don't want to eat this i'm fully aware of the harms i want this taken away from me or i want this i want to be warned about this and i i, I demand that real food is available and so that's that's my starting point because until yeah. you have a population asking that i think the the politicians are stuck because they they're industry funded and if the voter isn't saying please help me here then then they are stuck is that, yeah. is that well, a cop out? No, no, no. I appreciate it. I, I, I also, um, I fully appreciate why in a book about ultra processed foods, your conclusion wasn't what wasn't. We need to change the American campaign finance system, but that's that's in, in large part what we need to do around so many problems that we talk about here. I mean, you, and, you are you know, so yeah. And what you're saying is really kind of powerful to me that you're you're explaining so elegantly. You, we are all going to pay for this food, right? Like we, you, you're going to pay, you pay, you and I, well, you anyway, through your taxes, pay for the corn subsidy. You then pay yeah. all the health insurance costs. You, you pay the environmental costs. Like we're constantly paying for it. We pay for the lawsuits they bring against our governments when the governments do attempt regulation. So yeah, and, and, and never that's, think this, that this, this point food is cheap. Is, is actually spot on, right? Is we pay for the subsidies for the food that makes us sicker. Then we pay for the insurance system that allows somebody to take money off the top for the healthcare we then need. Then we pay both for the research and development of the drugs that we take to address the challenges that we should not have had because of the food we ate. And then we pay on top of that because we're not allowed to negotiate for the prices of those prescription drugs. We subsidize our own unhealth in a profound way, largely because of the mechanism of our politics. And, and, and that's the thing is that it's beyond the scope of a book. I, and, and I, I, I deeply appreciate the, the, you know, profound, um, immense work that you put into educating, uh, consumers on, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, and frankly, around the world about what this food is doing to us. And, and that is the work, but, you know, in, in our country, it's just so frustrating to know that this is part of our global export. You know, when, when people think about the impact of America on the world, we don't take it back to the notion that these corporations, that our, our, our pensions, uh, if only we had pensions, our 401ks uh, are invested in, right, that, that they are incentivized to drive our government to allow them to make shit that we then sell all over the world, making people unhealthier, and we end up bearing the cost on every side of it. And so, 
you know, it's important that 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 folks really take this. And I, what I'm what I'm going to ask, given that you know we're going to be talking about this right up to Thanksgiving, which traditionally is a moment where people actually do eat whole foods uh, for like the one meal of the year. Yeah. Maybe the other one is at, is <laughs> yeah. at Christmas. And then as you're as you're talking to your uh, your your auntie and your uncle and your cousin about the things you're thinking about. I hope this is one of them, right? Because look, you're you're eating a delicious turkey, and that turkey was probably fed on corn that was itself subsidized, so maybe not perfect, but like close. Let's not, let's not sweat about it too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. know, at least it's a turkey. Like it, you can <laughs> yeah, see, it's yeah. it's actual yeah. bones and sinew. Uh, yeah. Have that conversation because it really does ultimately often go back to that. And you know, this is the purpose of of your work, Chris, is, is that you're you're trying to remind us that the stuff that we eat every day, often mindlessly, as we consume other garbage through our eyes and our ears, right, that that, that this stuff has a real impact and it shouldn't have to be that way. Um, I just really appreciate the the work uh, that you're doing and uh, appreciate you you coming on uh, today to, to share it with us. Our guest today was Chris Van Tullikin. He is uh, both an infectious diseases doctor and he is associate professor at University College London, where he studies the impact of corporations on health. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time. Hey, thank you so much. This is literally the most interesting conversation I've had in a long time. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. To this point in the fall, only 3%, yeah, 3% of Americans have gotten their COVID-19 boosters. And that includes only 7% of nursing home residents, you know, the most vulnerable people to COVID. Those are both pandemic-era lows, and that should be astounding to all of us. This problem has two main causes. The first is that the rollout of the 2023 vaccine, as I predicted, has been, uh, let me find the technical term, hot garbage. Remember, this is the first year of commercialization, a fancy word for saying that the government is now focused on making sure that the corporations that manufacture these vaccines can make more money off of it than they are in making sure that people actually get the vaccines. So rather than anyone being able to get any vaccine anywhere vaccines are offered, instead, there's a piecemeal approach to who can get vaccines where. If you're insured, don't bother going to your local health department. Their supply is relegated to uninsured and Medicaid-eligible people. But if you're uninsured or Medicaid-eligible, then don't bother going to the local pharmacy. You can't afford it. See the problem here? What's even worse is the fact that many nursing homes can't crack the absurd bureaucracy this has created meaning that only 7% of the country's most vulnerable people to COVID have gotten the booster for it. It's a perfect demonstration of just how broken healthcare incentives can be. We've made it harder to get a vaccine that for years we've been saying is absolutely critical, simply so that the manufacturers can make more money. And you know what the outcome will be? Not only won't the vast majority of Americans get their booster, but the companies won't make much money either. And you know what? It serves them right. The second issue, though, here is simply apathy. Look, we're just not experiencing nearly the number of cases that we had been at this time last year, or certainly not the few years before, in 2020 and 2021. But 3% coverage? That's a real problem, considering that we simply don't know where this virus is headed. And there's still the risk that it's got one last evolutionary gasp inside it. And that, I don't have to tell you, could be catastrophic. So look, if you're one of those 93% of Americans who are eligible who have not gotten vaccinated, what are you doing? Go get your booster, please. Thanks. In other news, 42 states led by California's attorney general have filed a major lawsuit against the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, Meta, accusing it of damaging the mental health of their youngest users. They allege that Meta, you know, the purveyors of Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, knowingly, quote, designed psychologically manipulative product features to induce young users compulsive and extended use. Those features include things like push alerts, infinite scroll and disappearing stories. Make no mistake. The fact that social media is deliberately designed to be addictive is not in question. I mean, talk to any adult that you know who uses the stuff. That's the whole point of these platforms, after all. To own more market share of your eyeballs and eardrums, to push you ads to sell you stuff. That's the business model. But there are ultimately two questions that the attorneys general will have to prove. That meta specifically and knowingly targeted kids, and that there was demonstrated harm. The harm part is where I want to focus here. As we discussed in an episode on this topic a few months ago, American teens, and to a less extent, teens around the world, are facing a mental health crisis. And while it's on vogue to blame the pandemic, it started far further back. Rates of depression, anxiety, isolation, and suicidal thoughts began to hockey stick upwards in the mid-2010s, just as teen social media also began to skyrocket. And it's not just individual use. 
It's the way that social media has fundamentally reshaped the circumstances of teen social dynamics, pulling more and more of their lives into the online simulacrum. I'm glad that government leaders are pushing back. I just wish that instead of 42 attorneys general, that, well, the federal government could get its stuff together and move on this. And finally, as of this Sunday, more than 7,000 people, 3,000 of them children, had died in Israel's aerial assault on Gaza, leading up to their ground invasion over the weekend. Every single life deserves its dignity, and that's why I condemned and will continue to condemn Hamas's brutal attacks on Israel on October 7th. It was vile and wrong. But what of the lives of innocent Palestinians? Hamas's attack took 1,400 lives. Even before the ground invasion, Israel's attacks took 7,000, five times as many. The only way the loss of a life justifies the loss of five others is if you devalue those five others. And I'm afraid that as these bombardments have taken place, the conversation that's been had about them has done just that. I'm particularly ashamed by the way our leaders have engaged in this. I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. Question the body count is to devalue the people underneath it. And yes, it's true that Gaza's health ministry, operated by Hamas, keeps the body counts. Ideally, we'd have independent entities, like the UN or independent media on the ground to verify them. But you know why we don't? Israel has either driven them out or attacked them in their indiscriminate destruction of Gaza. Since October 7th, Israel has killed 57 UN staffers and 29 journalists. In any other circumstance, you'd probably have heard about this already. Chances are, this is the first time you're hearing about it. Or the 500 American citizens that are stuck on the border with Egypt that cannot get out. And if you're outraged by it, there's one answer. That we should be calling for a ceasefire now. This is a public health podcast, and I try to leave the international affairs work to folks like Tommy and Ben, who are far better versed on this than me. But I'm a doctor and a public health official. And I have to remind us all that war is the single most frustrating public health problem because it almost always can be avoided. And it should be. And it must be. And if we have a voice, we have a responsibility to call for its avoidance. So it's shocking and shameful to me that our leaders seem to be walking us into yet another Middle Eastern war with no end in sight. It could cost us tens of thousands of lives, decimate what's left of our reputation abroad, and could even cost young American servicemen and women their lives. We don't have to take it. We could choose another way. And that's why we need a ceasefire now, if only our leaders had the courage to call for it. And that's it for today. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emma Frank. Vasilis Fotopoulos mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takai Sazawa and Alex Ugera. Our executive producers are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Wayne County, Michigan or its Department of Health, Human, and Veteran Services.